0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In a COVID world, we have been focused on safety, yet almost all of us choose to engage in activities from swimming in the sea to driving a car or having a bottle of wine that carry risks. In fact, more died globally last year from alcohol than COVID. So how do we assess what risks to take and how much time and resource to protect ourselves from future risk? While it looks as if vaccines will bring the COVID pandemic under control, the next pandemic is potentially only just a virus away. Must we act urgently now to safeguard the world from a further catastrophe? Joining us to debate safety and risk we have Beverly Taylor, Head of Influenza and Scientific Affairs at Securis, Political Commentator and Freelance Journalist Ella Whelan, and Emeritus Professor of Decision Sciences, Lawrence Phillips. This debate is in association with Securis. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice, and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, mary Ann Seegart.
2: So how do we assess what risks to take and how much time and resource to protect ourselves from future risk? While it looks as if vaccines will bring the COVID pandemic under control, the next pandemic is potentially just a virus away. Must we act urgently now to safeguard the world further from a future catastrophe? Or should we assess this against other global risks, and then the cost and the resource involved? Is our ultimate goal to eradicate risk? Or must we just accept that risk is unavoidable? Well, we've got a great panel to discuss this here. Beverly Taylor is a biochemist. She's Head of Influenza and Scientific Affairs at Securus, and is an expert on global vaccine production and the inner workings of the WHO. Ella Whelan is a political commentator and freelance journalist. Uh, Her criticism of no platforming and 21st century feminism has caused her to clash with mainstream journalists on the BBC, Sky and Channel 4. And her first book is What Women Want, Fun Freedom and an End to Feminism. Lawrence Phillips, who likes to be called Larry, is an Emeritus Professor of Decision Sciences at the London School of Economics and a Director of Facilitations Limited. After a career beginning in electrical engineering and three years in the US Navy, Larry has become a leading expert in decision science with decades of experience studying risk. So, as you all know, the formula is that each of our guests here has three minutes to, to do a pitch on the first question, which is, in the context of the pandemic, how do we assess what risks to take and how much time and resource to protect ourselves from future risk? Beverly, I'm going to start with you.
3: Okay, thank you. Um, as we all know, we've just come through a devastating pandemic, which isn't quite over yet, had huge uh, impact on the economy as well as public health and, and um, social health. And, you know, I do believe that we've got to be prepared for that. Um, I think we need um, to be prepared, I think we need uh, robust surveillance of what viruses are emerging. And I think we need robust health systems um, for everybody so that all the preparedness activities can be implemented. I don't want to leave people with the impression that there is no preparedness, because WHO actually um, works to um, carry out surveillance globally to look for emerging viruses. And this is an ongoing program. I work on influenza, and there are 155 labs worldwide in 125 different countries that year round, day after day, are um, carrying out surveillance for influenza viruses. Not only the seasonal viruses, but the emerging viruses. And those emerging viruses coming from, that can potentially cause a pandemic, come from the animal-human interface. So the surveillance at that interface is a real opportunity for us to pick something up really early so that we can start building the preparedness in. And governments have also been prepared. So if you look at the UK government, we have, um, we have like a risk register uh, for the UK and influenza is right up there at the top, uh, as it is in many other countries. And the UK government has got preparedness plans. The problem is they were really focused on a pandemic influenza and not for COVID-19. So um, we've had a contract with the UK since 2012 to supply vaccines if it was influenza and we've got contracts with other countries. So this is something that, that has been thought about. And a lot of the things that were put in place that people won't be aware of at all, but um, actually got used for the COVID response. So the WHO preparation, the whole system, the whole network that they've got for influenza was actually used to carry out surveillance for COVID-19. So that's how we, knew, we know that the new variants are coming out. That's how we can develop new diagnostic kits, work on second generation vaccines. The same in the UK, you know, the robust supply chains, the stockpiles of vials and syringes. And and the fact that we have a vaccine that we make every year means that in the case of influenza, we could just have switched that over and made a vaccine much more quickly than we could for COVID because we already do that every year. Um, Unfortunately, in this case, it happened to be COVID and not influenza. But still, that preparedness made a difference. And I think we have to keep thinking about that. So important to be prepared for whatever comes our way. But if it's, if it's a respiratory virus or, or something else, a lot of the preparedness plans that we have already in place for influenza could be utilised uh, for a pandemic response. OK, that's interesting. I'm sure we'll come back
4: to that. Uh, Ella? I think that the, there's practical questions about how you prepare Um, to prevent against the the negative ways in which risk can affect you. And I I completely agree with everything you've just said in relation to making sure there is the uh, materials there for us to prepare for a future pandemic. But I suppose what I might put forward is the question of politically how we deal with risk. Um, And I really think that you should flip the question on its head that the balance for too long has been too far swayed in favour of preventing against risk rather than thinking about what we need to do to manoeuvre towards a life and a politics of greater freedom. And this balance between safety and being concerned with risk and freedom uh, has been very much tilted one way throughout the pandemic. Obviously, uh, in the early stages of the pandemic and when it was at it, the virus was at its worst for very good reasons, and uh, doing preventative things like lockdown measures to help uh, protect NHS from being overrun, or indeed protect the elderly from dying, as many of the, as many of them did, was a was a beneficial balancing of that risk versus um, freedom, sort of swaying. But I think that risk prevention, as we come out of the pandemic, we really have to think about the way in which we have pathologised risk. Have we now consider risk to be in some, an insurmountable challenge, something that we must Almost and always prevent against. I mean, I know that there's a war going on, a bit of a kind of cultural war going on about vaccine passports um, across Europe, but particularly in the UK, you know, the government flip flopping on whether or not they're going to have it. That, that being a very good example of where the idea of risk overcomes and the prevention of risk overcomes the need to think about civil liberties and freedom. But the, I think the crucial thing to think about, we're considering how important the idea of risk is, or maybe the beneficial parts of risk, is to understand that this phenomenon of us uh, dealing with risk as a kind of an evil, something to be warded off, hasn't just fallen from the sky during the pandemic. It's actually come out of political trends that have been long in the making. So they are, you know, from sort of banal things, if you want to think of it in a banal way, like uh, anti-smoking laws or interventions in relation to public health, being about pathologizing risk at the expense of individual freedom, there's been that trend. Uh, on a more political level, throughout the pandemic, there's been the government has implemented bans on protest, bans on freedom of speech online, in the way in which coronavirus or vaccines or whatever can be talked about. And that has happened uh, for decades previously through institutions, you know, in, bans on um, freedom of speech and freedom of debate. I mean, the current police crime um, prevention bill that's pretty much pretty Patel cracking down on protest is all part of that sense of. Risk involves trusting people to make decisions. And what we really are saying in society is that we can't trust people to make decisions. There's the kind of practical aversion to risk, you know, that we we should police what people eat in case there's the risk that if they're allowed to eat what they want, they become a drain on the NHS and are obese and fat. There's a psychological aversion to risk. You know, we've, We often talk about, particularly in education, the risk of marking kids' work with a red pen or telling them that they're wrong or disciplining them in case it causes some kind of psychological harm along the way. And then, as I've already mentioned, there's the political risk. I mean, I was just on a panel yesterday about dissent and democracy. One of the biggest problems we have in contemporary politics is a, is a misbelief in trusting people to take risks when it comes to political opinions, to try out this discussions, to try out ideas in free debates what we want to do is flimp risk on its head and think sensibly about it and think that one of, you know, what Beverly mentions, one of the most amazing things to come out of this pandemic has been the vaccine. And I'm no epidemiologist or scientist and know anything like that. I know a little bit from being a St John's Ambulance volunteer vaccinator, a tiny bit. But the the whole exciting thing about that is that taking risks and innovating in the world of science, for example, is part of progress. You can't experiment, you can't make mistakes, you can't learn lessons unless you inherently embrace the positives of risk. So I think we should think about what what shunning risk and and embracing safety in expense of freedom leaves us in terms of political change and progress in society. Thanks very much. Larry?
5: Well, I have a problem about all this because you're talking about taking risks. Actually, you don't take risks. I don't set out to take risks. What I do is I make decisions. And you said that, Ella. We take decisions, not risks. Risks are a consequence. What choices did I make in the light of COVID? Well, when we take decisions, we take decisions because we want to make something better. We have a, a goal, an objective. And my objective, my fundamental objective, is to stay alive. So. I have another objective, and that's to help other people. As a decision analyst, I do a lot of that. So I decided, yes, I would get vaccinated, right? So I've helped myself to stay alive, and I've helped you to stay alive as well. I don't see that there can be any doubt about that, but obviously there is in some people's minds, and that may be because they have different objectives. So I think we have to look at the objectives of what it is we're trying to, to, uh, to do. And you, you talked about political objectives and other objectives. Yes, they're all these, but fundamentally, what do we do? We take decisions. Let me tell you a little short story. My father smoked most of his life. When he was 70 years old, my sister, who was a nurse, took him through the emphysema ward of the local hospital. And as he left, he turned to her and said, oh my God, there are better and worse ways to die he quit smoking immediately and lived to be 96. Oh, brilliant. So so he had another objective which was the quality of his life and we take decisions to do those things. We don't take risks, we accept risk amounts, but let's focus on what we should be doing and what the objectives are that we are looking at.
2: Okay, so we're going to start by discussing should rationality drive our decisions about risk. It's an odd question because obviously we don't want to be irrational in our decisions about risk. But I think probably Ella touched on uh, how we can expand this, which is, you know, a lot of people just say, well, listen to the scientists and do whatever the scientists say. But actually, there is a much more of a political decision to be taken about what our risk appetite is. Um, but so, so, Ella, I'd like you to talk about this, but also, could, could you also, because you didn't really do this in your introduction, talk about the difference between people having a high risk appetite for themselves and saying, no, I don't want to have a vaccine, I'm prepared to take the risk of catching COVID and I think I'll be fine. But also the fact that if they don't have a vaccine, they're more likely to give it to other people.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, it's as someone who's very, very pro um, vaccine, in fact, if there's a jab, give it to me. I'm not, I'm not too fussy about it. I get the flu jab every month, every year and all that kind of thing. Um, it's very hard to inhabit the psyche of someone who is, I would argue, perhaps irrationally against the vaccine, who will refuse to, you know, whether it's kind of like to use stereotypes, hippies in Bristol or people who listen to David Icke in Trafalgar Square. It's very hard to inhabit their way of thinking. But part of, when we're talking about the practical aspect of needing to vaccinate a population uh, for a social prevention of a very real risk of coronavirus killing people, um, we're, what we're also talking about in that social responsibility is the what are the risks of... Can, of uh, limiting and condemning and restricting people having free opinions that that's the other side of the risk is what happens when you mandate something and what are the ramifications of the risk that will come with that so it's a you know i'm really glad you mentioned the whole thing of talk, you know just rely on the science um which actually is becoming a trend not just in relation to covid but in relation to climate change in relation to uh you know to bring up that word that everyone hates to hear at how the light gets in festival in Bre- brexit during the 2016 referendum the whole idea of just listen to the experts don't take risks with the economy or anything there is this trend to depoliticize its issues and part of the point of risk and our, our quality of life our objectives of how we live because human beings aren't just about staying alive otherwise we'd be no better than animals is thinking about what risks are good what risks are bad and what risks are worth it you know so on balance I would always argue that the risk of you Uh, taking the vaccine, whatever you conceive that to be, is not worth it to put at risk the other lives of the rest of your citizens. That's quite a sophisticated thing that we have to try and get people to come along with. The crucial thing is talking about it, having an argument about it, rather than saying, because there's a risk, there's no discussion here. That's the difference between having a very kind of, you know, talking about rationality, having a sort of evidence based, um, very apolitical, very kind of limiting scientific way of looking at risk and saying that actually it's part of human nature to take risk. It's part of politics of democracy to consider risk.
3: Beverly, you're the scientist. Yes, yeah, I was just going to yeah. say, so I'm the scientist. Um, obviously, I'm going to fall down on the rational side of the fence, and I think there is a lot of value in you know, evaluating all the data, identifying what criteria you're going to use to make decisions. It's not going to be perfect, but at least it gives you a starting point for decision-making. I think as well that it's really important that people are informed completely. So I'm just going to give an example here. So when all the issue about the AstraZeneca vaccine causing blood clots came out, you know, the number of blood clots were four per million people. Women on the contraceptive pill, between 500 and 1,200 women get blood clots per million. If you smoke, it's 1,800 blood clots per million. But wait for the punchline, because if you get COVID, 165,000 cases per million of blood clots. Why did we just hear in the media there are four blood clots per million people? Don't you think that people deserve to have the full picture so they can make... It might not be a completely rational decision. There is um, a book written by uh, Kahneman, which is actually in the bookstore here, talking about fast and slow thinking. And I think the slow thinking is the rational... Um, process that we go through but you do need some facts as as the baseline for that and then if you make a gut feel decision at the end of that at least it's based on something but I think giving people half the story is misleading um, it's just causing concern for people and you know I just think you know you need to look at the facts um, and, and do you feel
2: that the media weren't presenting enough facts
3: Well, I, I the pandemic? D- I, just, I, think, I think they tried very hard. I am not judging the media. You need to give the complete picture so that people can make a more of an informed decision. You know, I don't know if people knew the difference in the risk of blood clots between having the vaccine... Politicians
4: didn't either. No, I mean, no. half
3: European politicians took the question,
4: the, you know, yeah. the decision out of our hands yeah. by blocking it in Germany and France. No? And,
3: and the other thing I just want to add is, you know, sometimes you do do something not just for yourself, but for other people. And if you look in the case of influenza, there was a decision made to immunise children for influenza, and they started this paediatric programme, and the kids get the um, nasal flu um, in, in the school programme. My son goes through it. And demonstrated that the hospitalizations in the elderly every season have gone down because we've managed to control the disease in these you know, snotty children that love to hug everybody and mix together and everything, and, and it's made a difference. You know, so sometimes it's not obvious, you know, if we immunize the kids, we'll get this result, but that is, that's the result. Larry?
5: <laughs> oh, goodness. We talk about rationality. We talk about risk. To my mind, being rational is being consistent in making decisions that realize your objectives, Okay. I think most of us would agree with that. But um, we haven't really talked about what we mean by risk. And this is where I begin to worry about following the science. And this is because risk, according to Paul Slovak, who's a social scientist, a friend of mine, who published a paper many years ago in Science Magazine, he actually asked people to compare risks. Now, if risk is a single thing, like the probability of something bad happening, which most of us think about it, then if A is riskier than B and B is riskier than C, then A must be riskier than C. Well, it doesn't take very much experimentation to discover, no, sometimes C is seen to be riskier than A. So how many dimensions do you have to have in Uh, order... How does that work? If A is riskier than B and B is riskier than C... Then A uh, must be riskier than C. Yeah, so
2: how can that not be the case? You're saying sometimes it isn't.
5: It definitely isn't because he asked all all these comparisons of people and sometimes they said C was riskier than A. Oh, I see. So people's assessment of risk is... So they're going around in circles and that's irrational. Yeah. We all agree with that. So the question is how many dimensions of risk do you need in order to explain what it is? And he found three. The first one was the extent to which you dread the consequences, right? That's an internal feeling. Would you dread living next to a nuclear power station? Probably. The other one, other dimension, is the extent to which the risk is unknown. Well, actually, at the beginning, we didn't know very much about COVID. And we dreaded it because it looked like it was pretty dangerous. And the third dimension is how many people are affected. That's at least an objective one, and we can measure that one. But basically, you've got two subjective concepts. So when scientists say the probability is low for whatever, as they did remember when BSE was around, I used to say to my students, explain BSE response on these three dimensions. Well, on the dread dimension, I dread my brain turning into a sponge. On the vertical dimension, we didn't know anything about it. And who is affected? Just everybody who's been eating beef. Right? <laughs> so no wonder people thought that it was it was risky to eat beef, even though the scientists, you know, what wasn't one of them fed his daughter a hamburger or something? Yeah, Joan Gomez <laughs> <It's>, Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we need to focus on the dimensions of risk that people are worried about. Now, the press, to my mind, is irresponsible in reporting how many people died. You always got to say how, what the proportion is. Yes, it's got to, but better not, a, we, we don't understand proportions. It's better to say how many out of 100,000 or 10,000, right? So that would be a better way. We're still seeing graphs of just how many people have died, and how, that, that's, not, that's not as informative for taking decisions as knowing what the rest is. Anyway, we need to think about things to reduce the sense of dread which, of course, the media can easily inflate and just be more rational by thinking about how people are thinking about risk, not that it's the probability of something bad happening. That doesn't help.
2: Okay, let's move on now to, you know, we're encouraged to get flu jabs, aren't we, Um, particularly over 50s, but there's nothing like the focus on flu jabs as there is on COVID jabs. Presumably that's because COVID is a lot more serious in its consequences and flu is it?
3: Well I think I mean obviously COVID has caused a global pandemic which we're not in a global pandemic for influenza right now so you know I think obviously the focus has been on that and you know we 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 didn't know at the beginning and so there's been this real drive to get people vaccinated but actually we do pretty well for flu in certain age groups in the UK so for the over 65s You know, there's a WHO target for these risk groups, for 70% of people in the risk groups to get vaccinated. And we're usually almost at that in the UK. And last year, we actually exceeded um, that for the over 65s. And, um, you know, that's been through years of encouraging people to do that, not mandating it. But um, that helped tremendously because that cohort of people that needed to have the COVID vaccine Early on, the over 65s are already used to going for their annual flu vaccine, so that, that you know all the there was no um, very little vaccine hesitancy from some of those groups. Now it's different in some of the younger groups because I think they, that they perceive risk in a totally different way. They don't feel so much at risk themselves, but um, but I, I I do think that the things that were in place for influenza. I mean, if we were in a pandemic influenza, you know, so if you look at some of the pandemic strains, so there's, you may have heard of um, the bird flu, H5N1. There was another strain, H7N9, which caused quite, uh, you know, thousands of cases in China from 2013 to 2017. If you look at the mortality rate for those strains, they're between 30% and 50%, much higher oh. than, than COVID. So, you know, you can't, say never for influenza but i think you know for seasonal influenza i think we should encourage as much as possible and demonstrate the benefits but it would be a different situation if we were in an influenza pandemic
2: but for but for seasonal flu we go and get our jabs because we don't want to catch it there isn't that sense of we get a jab to protect other people yeah is there
3: yeah i know and i think that there should be because it was interesting, before I was coming on here to do the panel, I decided in, in a severe season for influenza in the UK, we can see up to 30,000 deaths. So I don't expect anybody to have, have known that, and, you know, and maybe we should. So then I took the 30,000 and I thought, right, you know, flu season over the winter months, so I generously gave it six months, and I divided the 30,000 by the number of the days in six months, and that's 165 deaths a day from influenza in a severe season. Well, that is not dissimilar to the numbers that we're seeing for COVID. OK, it's been sort of for a longer period, not just over the winter months. But that, gives, that again gives you another dimension on, on the risk. You know, I don't think people appreciate the risk from influenza because we never see the numbers in the media.
2: Yeah, but 30,000 over the winter season. If you looked at COVID deaths over the winter season, it would be quite a bit more than that, wouldn't it?
3: it? It depends because we don't know. I mean, people weren't vaccinated last winter. I mean, some of the numbers were high. So if maybe this winter will be a better... We'll, we'll find out. ...better comparison. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But influenza is not without risk and the numbers... We don't have a severe season every season, but I, you know, when we do, it's, it's right up there.
4: And if you, I mean, it's hard not to, if, when you give us a figure like 165 deaths a day or, um, and, and the rolling news figures of deaths, have really ramped up a sense of fear in society and that the media is very responsible for um, scaring the shit out of people, you know, in some ways, very necessarily, to to hammer home the reality of the challenge that we were faced with, with coronavirus. But also in other respects to, I think, to allow the government to get away with some of its more um, lazy and reprehensible policies. So if you look at the ongoing uh, policy of restricting... Care home visits, for example, this is a really practical the issue of elderly people or people, you know, not just elderly people, any resident of a care home, because there are people in care homes of all ages. They have been while the rest of us are here enjoying um, the sunshine together in a tent maskless and, you know, relatively in small steps going back to normal life. In care homes, people, for example, elderly people with dementia were still having restrictions on them being allowed out of that home, of them being allowed to touch their friends and family without PPE. Really inhumane things that in the, in the middle of an emergency virus, you think, OK, to protect life in some instances might be justifiable, but now really is unjustifiable. And you have some politicians and commentators coming forward and saying, in order to protect against flu, And the way in which, you know, flu can be um, deadly for particularly the elderly and the infirm, we should continue these restrictions. And what lots of people in care homes and their family and friends are saying, well, what's the balance here? If If my mother is in a care home and she is going in and she has dementia, and most people who have known people with dementia know that there's a limited time in which you... Get, they usually go in and it's about six or seven years and then they end up tragically dying. That's generally the trajectory of people with dementia. I know I used to work in a care home. But what's the cost of being unable to interact with that person and enjoy that last year, two years, three years, five years, and then protecting them and shielding them and treating them in this very inhumane way? There's a real, there's a real loss of sense of balance. And so while, you know, what frustrates me most is that one of the things that the government has done well is the vaccine rollout, and that, and rather than celebrate the innovation of human beings to come up with a and fantastic scientists to come up with a way to deal to allow us to be able to take risks again to be able to look at each other without masks to be able to hold hands to be able for their to kids to kiss their grandkids rather than celebrate that what we can the narrative continues to be how do we you know, how do we um, stay away from risk? Should we now, moving into the winter, have another lockdown? Should we now, moving into the winter, make masks mandatory, make vaccine passports mandatory, despite the fact that the Delta variant, as I in my limited understanding, throws vaccine passports all into question in its effectiveness? There's a lack of emphasis on how to, this is what I'm kind of hammering home, the move towards freedom, rather than an obsession with risk. And the flu really terrifies me, because for particularly, not just because of its danger, but because for old people, that to lots of them sounds like another death knell on their freedom, because it, you can see the argument for keeping people locked up and shielded in case they catch flu or come into contact with flu. When actually, lots of elderly people throughout the pandemic were saying, I'm not going to stop seeing my grandkids. I've probably got you know, an hour or another year in this world. I want to live it the way I live it. And respecting that sense of being objective about quality of life is important as well. Mm. I think there's a
2: very good point about care homes. But actually, when it comes to freedom, we've got one of the highest number of cases per million of COVID at the moment in the world. And yet we're actually really quite free compared with other countries. You know, I've, friend, I've had friends coming over here from France from Ireland, from America saying, God, it's so weird. People aren't wearing masks here, you know, where I've, where I've been living. Yeah. Or even Scotland, yeah, where I've God been living. Wearing, well, <laughs> we are sort of outdoors, aren't we? <laughs> um, but, but nonetheless, I mean, actually, wouldn't, wouldn't you say that this government's got really quite a high appetite for risk well compared with other countries
0: it
4: i mean it depends i think that the you know if you look at the way in which well if you look at for example what france is doing um or what it was doing in relation to ha- needing a mandatory vaccines for you know going into a library a cafe, going about normal life rather than sort of targeted for example i'm probably in favor of vaccine passports uh, though it makes me uncomfortable for specific areas like care homes, because there's a, you know, in taking into account all the risks and all the balances, I think it's probably necessary in very limited you know, places like that. But when France, along with Merkel and Macron, having kind of thrown massive doubt on a population about the effectiveness of vaccines and AstraZeneca and playing fast and loose with the truth, now suddenly cracks down on a population and the population is much less likely, actually, to want to get that vaccine and understand the necessity of getting that vaccine. Because A, they've been misinformed quite literally. And B, there's a sense of coercion, which isn't treating citizens um, seriously. But th- but it's not rosy in the UK. The picture is not rosy. Because while we've had greater take-up of vaccine, that's a real thing to celebrate, um, a more positive response to um, taking lockdown measures seriously, and actually we have on the whole had quite a compliant population who have stayed at home, who have volunteered, who have done the things they need to, to do on the whole. The, you know, the, the government's response is to continue to dangle risk over us um, as a threat. So you have um, Nadine Zahawi what, back in January saying, no way in hell will I have vaccine passports. We will never be a papers police society. We understand how dangerous that would be with civil liberties. A few months later, it's like, eh, did I say that? Eh. So the, you know, the UK government is incredibly duplicitous in terms of being able to take citizens seriously and trust us to be able to manage risk. So, you know, whether it be continuation of emergency COVID laws, um, the continuation of crackdowns on protests, you know, the limp, you know, I know that how the light gets in festival in relation to its um, size and capacity has had to change, despite the fact that it's an outdoor festival and everybody here is incredibly sensible and safe, you know, the effect of all these measures on the, the normal goings on of, of life, of you know, even myself, I'm planning the Battle of Ideas Festival that's taking place in three weeks and I'm constantly having sleepless nights as to whether or not Boris Johnson's going to decide to flip-flop on putting in some kind of restrictions and just, I'll have to bin all my work. And the dangling of risk as a threat, I think, is what the government is now doing, rather than embracing not the new normal, but some kind of normality that is free from the threat of restriction. What do you think about that, Larry?
5: Well, again, it all depends about what, what the risk is about. We're talking about health risks, and in general, the research shows that we are conservative about health risks. But that's not true of social risks, not true necessarily of financial risks, of recreational risks, gambling, and so forth. In other words, it depends upon what it is we're talking about, and we focused mainly on on health risks, and the interesting thing is that when people get together and talk about they can actually change their risk attitude. And in general, what happens is that when they talk about all those other things other than health risks, they become more risky. But in health, when we talk about it, they get less risky. So I I have no idea whether this will have that impact impact on all of you. You'll go away, especially after what Bev has said in comparing uh, COVID to flu you know thinking carefully about this you might actually change your attitude
2: well actually that leads very well into our third question which is should our experience of the pandemic change our attitude to risk in the future I mean you're 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 suggesting it probably will
5: <laughs> uh, absolutely there's no doubt about you it I think
2: we'll become more conservative more of us will walk around with face masks on routinely in the winter well
5: it depends upon how we communicate if we if we fear monger by, giving the, by, by not paying attention to those three dimensions, uh, and we keep saying, no, it's safe, it's safe, then that's not the right approach. Either. Well,
2: fear-mongering is saying it's dangerous, it's dangerous, isn't it?
5: Well, we all know that COVID is something bad. If you only report the bad stuff about COVID, you will make people even more worried about it. That, that's what I'm saying. That should we it's, be more it's, worried? It's called, you're
2: saying we shouldn't, are you?
5: Well, I, look, I've never used the word should because should is, is my judgment about what you're doing. Yeah. And I don't know what your objectives are, so I don't say should about anything. <laughs> uh, it's hard, by the way, to not, to not do it. It is. Actually, it's very hard. <laughs> but, but, the, but the point is that we need to know, what, well, how are people taking decisions? On what basis are they taking decisions? And over time, we do change. And we can change that if... The, Paul Slovic also has done studies about how fear can, can sort of socially permeate everybody's. People who are afraid to fly very often have thought, oh my god, this is terrible. We, we just get stories about how many people were killed and they don't want to fly. Well, yeah, because we don't hear about all those days when it was perfectly safe. So, so there, there's a social spread of, of, of risk, which is not rational. And we've got to keep that in balance.
2: Beverly, you're, you're the scientist. Do you, do you think that our experience of this pandemic should change our attitude to risk?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think it has. I mean, we've been doing um, a piece of work with a professor from a university in Norway, and he's looked in several European countries, including the UK, about the perception of vaccination. And actually, because we've been through this massive COVID vaccination programme, here in the UK, people are more likely to get influenza vaccine, which is really interesting. So I think the value of vaccination has really come through i mean it's been seen as the savior i mean sarah gilbert gets a standing ovation yeah. at wimbledon which is absolutely amazing and, and well deserved so you know i think perceptions have already changed you know i think as well from a, a planning perspective they've also got to change because you know we 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 have to be ready for the next pandemic you know I've, I've worked in flu for over 20 years, and everybody knows that a flu pandemic will occur. If you look, you know, we had 2018, we had the Spanish flu. 57, we had Asian flu. 68. 1918. Oh, sorry, 1918. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, right. um, and um, 1968, we had the Hong Kong flu. And then in 2009, obviously, we had the swine flu. You know, th- there is a certain cadence to the influenza pandemics and we can't say when it will happen but you know in the field of influenza people say we know it we know it will happen it's just when it when it will happen so i think some of the plans you know we need to take the learnings from covid you know what what worked well what was already there but what didn't work well and how could we make it better i think we have to think about preparedness as an insurance you know, we've all got house insurance, but we don't expect our house to burn down or, or whatever. But the insurance is there. It gives us peace of mind. And I think we've got to stop looking at preparedness as a cost and more preparedness as, as insurance. I've worked on pandemic preparedness for influenza for many years and even talking to my colleagues at work. A pandemic was such an abstract concept, and I'd be saying, well, you know, we need to make sure our supply chain's are robust, you know, we need to look at having more stocks of vials and things like this. And as we were building this programme, because it wasn't happening tomorrow, people were like, oh, well, we've got plenty of time. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and it was like, where did that report go that Beverly wrote about <laughs> pandemic preparedness? Yeah. You know, and I said, oh, I just happened to have a copy here. Yeah. Oh, so you're listening now. You know, but it's, it's completely changed because it's happened and people all of a sudden say, oh, my God, it can happen. So,
2: so next time round, you're saying we will be better prepared.
3: Well, I hope we have the opportunity, yeah. you know, because the risk of us having an influenza that is more severe than COVID is very, very real. And, you know, but we do have the opportunity, and I am an optimist, and I think we can take the lessons, we can build something better so that we will be better prepared for next time, and and we can save more lives.
2: But from your experience, you know, at WHO and presumably here, do you think the political will is now there for more preparedness, for spending money on something that isn't a problem now but might be I, in the future. I do
3: yeah. but I also remember how short the memories were in 2009 after swine flu. That's so, right. So yeah. swine flu wasn't as severe as COVID but memories particularly political memories don't last that long so I think we've got to strike while the iron's hot and try and get some things embedded so that they, they carry on and I'm not just talking about in the UK or in developed countries, we really need to look at low and middle-income countries.
5: You know, the swine flu reminds me. I was working at the European Medicines Agency at the time, and Thomas Lundgren said, "We have a real problem." This was in August two thousand nine. Uh, the WHO has just declared that this H one N one virus is pandemic now. What shall we do? We have to, we have a big problem in this. in the the EMA because we can't approve the drug. We don't have enough data. But on the other hand, if we wait to approve it, people will die. So what do we do? We had to do a, a decision analysis, and the first person to speak said, you don't want to do this because we don't have the data. And we did have the data because we drew on past experiences. So we did formulate probabilities, put the thing together, and it said you should act now. And actually the CHNP and the EMA did act right away in September rather than wait until October. The lesson from that is the preparedness has to recognize how important it is to move quickly.
4: I think it would be you know the the funny thing is despite the fact that we've had um, daily reminders of the death toll of coronavirus and that has obviously the loss of life is the most serious effect of COVID if you're thinking about it in the abstract when you talk to people about the last 18-19 months and when you have conversations you say usually people say hasn't the last hasn't the pandemic been awful the way in which we haven't been able to see each other the thing that they think of as first and foremost as the worst part of this experience has been the social isolation the stoppage of society it doesn't you don't necessarily talk about the fact of how many people died and i think what that shows you is that that we, if we are to learn something and if we are to do something differently in the way in which we respond to future challenges, is so that I think we've learned what the cost and consequences of being, uh, of preventing risk has been. And the other side of that, the flip side of what, hap- you know, what is the cost of organizing society around the potential for risk? And if you, to give a different example other than coronavirus, and to sort of give an example, um, despite with the greatest respect to scientists on the panel, why it's sometimes difficult to allow people who are experts in their field, whether it be science or the economy or something, to make decisions, is that the, you you tend to have a relatively blinkered view of if you're constantly looking at death death toll figures and the potential risk, it's hard to broaden out and, and think about what the consequences of ma- mitigating against those risks are. So that in a just very quickly in a WHO sort of draft paper. Um, that was released, there was the suggestion that all women of childbearing age, uh, which means, you know, women who've had, girls who've had a period, so we're talking about, like, what, 13, 14 onwards, should abstain from alcohol in case they became pregnant. And this was in relation to levels of uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. That is absolutely bananas that you would suggest for women's liberation, that women should never touch a drop of alcohol (laughs) in case they might fall pregnant at some point. And that's, you know, that's an absurd example, but I think that if we're to move forward with how to appreciate freedom, we have to stop prioritizing risk as the be all and end all thing to deal with and actually flip it and say, what are the consequences and what are the benefits of embracing risk and embracing the potential for danger in some forms?
2: Okay, fantastic. So it just remains for me to say thank you so much to Ella, Larry, Beverly, it's been a fascinating debate.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
0: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars.